I want to have you turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13, and we're going to take one more break from Matthew's gospel in honor of the announcement we just made about our, our building. John chapter 2, verse 13, the second verse of the classic hymn, The Church is One Foundation, gives really a, a lofty view of the bride of Christ. And we, we want to engender that. We want to um, help uh, cultivate a high view of Christ's church. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. The bride of Christ, as organized by the Lord Jesus himself, is gloriously blessed. And we're blessed to be a part of the bride of Christ. And historically, the bride of Christ has met in places. Our announcement of these plans today, I think it's worthy of stopping to consider why we even bother with this. Why not save the money? Why not just let the way the front of the building looks, just let it be. Let's just get, you know, 100 cans of spray paint and be done with it. Or maybe our neighborhood will help us with that, but we're, we're hoping that doesn't happen. But why not just save the money? Now, I've preached extensively on the needs and reasons for a church facility, our Joyful Generosity preaching series. Our book does that. I'm not worried about that. This is not a fundraising sermon. You've already given faithfully the joyful generosity and we certainly won't stop you if you have more to give, but this is not my purpose this morning. What I'd like to do today, though, is activate our minds and our hearts toward the idea that God's people have always centered their worship around what we call sacred space. Sacred space, that there it really is an entire theology around this concept. Now, there are some practical reasons to endeavor to have a nice facility. And I'll remind you of some of those, but I'm going to make that very quick because that's not my focus this morning. But just a few very practical reasons that make sense from a logical human standpoint. Uh, A church facility that repels the passerby doesn't really accurately represent the gospel that we're offering, right? The truth of the gospel is glorious. It's beautiful. We also want to push back against what some have called over-pragmatism that space and usability is everything. That if we have four walls and a roof with lots of square footage, then that's successful. But history has shown us that a facility makes a theological statement. Is there somehow more inherent holiness in something that's plain, cheap, dull, and simple? That's what over-pragmatism would say. We also know that the facility helps create stability. I've heard this saying until it just gets so old that the church is not a building. There is nobody in this room who believes that the church is a building. We're we're way past that. We understand that the church are the people that God has called through Christ. And so we, we don't need to go down that road. And so along those lines, some will actually say, well, we're never going to even have a facility because uh, the church is not a building. And that's the reason they give. And the new church plant, uh, and I've been involved with a new church plant uh, many years ago. It can seem really fun and really cool because you're meeting in a the theater or you're meeting in a park and that's exciting and that's great. And you get to set up every Sunday and there's an excitement to that. 35 years in, it gets a little dull. It's like, 
Show me a church that's been around for 200 years meeting in a theater somewhere. That doesn't exist. Eventually, the church needs to set down roots that create stability. And practically speaking, we live in a culture in which things happen in a building. If your doctor had a pop-up tent in a Walmart parking lot, you'd say, I think I'll just die. I'd rather not go to you, right? If your dentist operated out of the back of his pickup, said, come here, I got a tool for this, and opened his toolbox, you're not going to go there. So that's just the culture we live in. So those are some practical thoughts, but there's a heart behind joyful generosity. There's a heart behind a church facility that goes way beyond the pragmatics. I believe that overall, the church of Jesus Christ has lost a sense of sacred space theology. In our efforts to be spiritual, I think we can be inadvertently platonic in our thinking. Plato's philosophy taught that all physical things are bad and only the immaterial, the invisible, the spiritual is good. And we've talked about during our Millennium Series on Sunday nights how that's even invaded the way we study the Bible at times. And we can begin to devalue the physical by thinking that there's more spiritual value to the invisible things. That where you meet doesn't matter. How you present yourself doesn't matter. What you give doesn't matter. And in fact, we live in a culture where most churches in our nation believe that the more informal, the more loose, and the more culturally relevant you are, the better you off you are. That all those things don't matter. You know, when God met Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses, take your sandals off because where you're standing is holy ground. In other words, don't take lightly the place that you're meeting with God. We don't take it lightly. So I want to explore the idea of sacred space. And I want to simply ask an if-then question from one text, and then I'm going to give you an answer from another text. So first, let's ask the if-then question. We're going to look at this from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, But I'm going to walk through the whole text first, and then I'll ask you the if-then question, okay? So that's the deal. We're going to walk through the text first, then I'll ask you the question. So the context here is important. Jesus had spent a number of days in Capernaum after the wedding of Cana when he turned water into wine. Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry. This is at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 16 miles from Cana, so it's about a day's walk. The text won't tell us how much time elapsed between Jesus' visit to Capernaum and the Passover that we're going to read about here. But in verse 13, John explains that the Passover of the Jews was near. John's original readers were Jewish, but the education of the Gentile reader is apparent here as John gives that little explanation. And you recall the significance of Passover. This was the remembrance of God's mercy in passing over their households when he executed the firstborn of every Egyptian family and and the the Passover is prescribed in Exodus 12 as a remembrance. Jerusalem is south from Capernaum but much higher in elevation so it was said that you go up to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to the temple here, verse 13, and the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was the symbol of Jewish national and spiritual and religious identity. And most importantly, it was the 
meeting place that God had designated for the God of heaven to meet with the people of the earth, specifically with Israel. And it was a place where the Gentile, the non-Jew, could come and worship as well, one who had expressed true, genuine faith in the one living God. And so the temple had a court of the Gentiles. It still maintained the uniqueness of the Jew, and yet the Gentile was able to come and worship the Lord as well, remembering that God never rejects a Gentile who wants to genuinely worship him, to turn to him by faith. The whole purpose of Israel is to tell a watching world about the God of the universe, about the God of, of creation. And so this is important because what we're about to read takes place in the outer court of the Gentiles, where the Gentile was supposed to be able to come and in, in somber homage to the Lord, offer his worship. Verse 14, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So you have these sellers, they're selling oxen or cattle, sheep, uh, pigeons or doves. This enabled the worshiper to not have to lead or drive animals long distances to sacrifice. They could just buy one instead. The animals were needed for the various offerings prescribed in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And the Passover was a time when people also came to offer these sacrifices. So so there's a huge crowd of people here. This is a, a bustling, busy time. But the people also had to pay a temple tax. And that tax is prescribed in Exodus 30 for the care and running of the temple. An Israelite, in fact, was prohibited from showing up to worship God thinking it would cost him nothing. Nobody would show up to say, I'll worship God for nothing. And so because of this, you also had the money changers. Now, the money changers served a a function. There were at least three types of coins in circulation in Israel, Greek coins, Roman coins, and Jewish coins. And the Gentile coins were not accepted for the temple tax. So the money changers made their living exchanging money. They set up shop in the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles. This was for the convenience of the worshipers. All of them, by the way, were charging inflated prices for their services. And the recipient of those inflated prices was the family of the chief priest. They were the beneficiary because you had to pay a fee to sell in the temple. And the chief priest's family got that money. None of them had any care for the Gentile who wanted to come and worship God. They had no concern for those who needed the Lord, those who were, who were trying to worship the one living God. They had no sense of responsibility to the world as they were supposed to, according to Exodus 19. They had no responsibility to the Lord. They, they didn't care about that. They just took what was meant to be genuine, heartfelt worship based on an internal reality of true faith, and they turned it into a cultural fad into a system of ethics devoid of actual faith in the Lord, and now it just became a business. And I want you to picture this, because there's such a a strange picture of two things happening at once here, one contradicting the other. You have the prayers of true believers in the Lord, and, and understand we're so used to thinking in terms of communicating with God anywhere we are. It's hard for us to, to understand that for the true believer in the Lord, they were taught that to communicate with God, you went to the temple. And imagine having to travel, in some cases, hundreds and hundreds of miles to go and communicate with God and to, to express to God that I want to follow you. 
and to bring a sacrifice, a, a, a genuine heartfelt act of worship. These are those who had repented of sin and they're saved based on the coming work of Messiah that they've heard of in the Old Testament. They're hearing the songs of the faithful who come from many miles away to worship at the temple, some of them singing traditionally Psalm 100 as they walk the roads to Jerusalem eager to worship God. There's the deep yearning of the Gentile who, who is so thankful that the God of the Jews has accepted him as well. And then there's the deep yearning of the true Israelite saints offering sacrifice and obedience to the law out of love for their gracious God. And you have all of these trying to gather together Drowned out by the bellowing chaos of cows and sheep and and customers haggling with vendors. This was supposed to be holy ground. Instead, it was a fairground. It was a terrible environment. The true faith as prescribed by God to Israel and the law had been turned into a cultural event that was nothing more than a county fair. They had forgotten why they needed the sacrifice in the first place. And Jesus was going to utterly reject this false system which bore an external resemblance to the worship of the true God, but in reality was what he called whitewashed tombs. It's disgusting and ugly on the inside. And Jesus saw the degradation of what used to be genuine faith. And he was incensed that the very place where God had graciously chosen to meet with humanity had now become the place where people were selfishly flaunting their fallenness. Verse 15, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. This is the first of two times that Jesus cleanses the temple. Several years later, at the end of his ministry, Jesus would do it again on the Tuesday before his crucifixion. So Jesus essentially begins and ends his ministry in this defense of his Father's holiness and, by the way, in demonstration of his own authority and deity. So Jesus took some cords or some ropes, probably some of those used by customers to to lead their purchased animals away. It would have been a, a large whip, big enough to drive cattle around. The worshipful atmosphere that was to characterize the temple grounds, the symbol of God's presence with his people, had been turned into fairgrounds, a county fair. And three things happen here. Jesus drives out the animal sellers with their animals, just everything. They take it all and go. The the whip was to drive out the animals and to cause a stampede. And I have to admit, I would have loved to have seen this, to watch him do this. The second thing that happened, he overturns the money changers' tables, coins rolling all over the place. And you can imagine the pandemonium that would cause. And he ordered those selling the pigeons to leave. It's kind of like, well, we're just the little bird sellers. Maybe he won't notice us. And no, I saw you two get out of here. And what's the result? It would have been pandemonium, chaos. Animal sellers chasing animals all over the place. Money changers scrambling around on the ground, grabbing coins. Those selling birds, grabbing cages and running. And I can imagine Jesus' disciples just kind of going, he didn't warn, he didn't say, excuse me guys, I'm going to go do something real quick. He just went and did it. 
Now, I want to point this out. This is the very first time in John's gospel that Jesus calls God my father. And in doing so, he boldly declares that he has a relationship with God that's completely unique and different than the rest of mankind. Later in the gospel, Jesus would declare that if anyone wants to enter into this relationship with his father, you must come through Christ. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so I want you to notice what is not in this text, what is not here. He doesn't go to the high priest to complain about the trade. He doesn't fill out a complaint form. He doesn't start a protest march. He doesn't pass around a petition. He doesn't try to talk some sense into the sellers. No, Jesus is acting like the owner. This is my father's house. This is my house. In fact, unbelieving Jews even would later admit that when Jesus calls himself the son of God, he is making himself what? equal with God. Now his disciples are with him and they're picking their jaws up off the ground, I suppose, as they see Jesus just completely go nuts, if you can put it that way. He abandons them. He he picks up these loose ropes or cords and he starts whipping cattle and sheep and and people and, and Jesus goes on this rampage. He didn't tell the disciples, excuse me guys, I'll be right back. He just went crazy. He was infuriated with what was happening in the temple. This was his father's house. God's holy holy purity won't stand for the sabotage of the defilement of his house. Jesus is livid at the defilement of the pure worship of God. He calls the temple his father's house, his dwelling place. The temple was the earthly representation of the heavenly throne room. By the way, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that the temple was a model of the actual throne room of God in heaven. In Isaiah 6, the prophet went to the temple. He found himself by God's power having the model and the real thing in heaven joined together so that he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And you might add in your footnote there, they saw the zeal of the Son of God for his Father. They, they saw that with their own eyes. Now, you know the new covenant. In the coming new covenant, the center of worship is Christ. That's the center of worship. Jesus explained this to the woman at the well in John 4. Temple worship in the coming church age will be replaced. The temple is for Israel and the temple is going to be destroyed in 8 AD 70. It has yet to be rebuilt. In the new covenant, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we are now the temple of God on earth. The place, as it were, where God dwells among men. So here's my if-then question about sacred space. It's actually an if-if-if-if-if-then question. Here's the question. If sacred space doesn't matter because the church is the church wherever we are, and if the church isn't a building, and if the soon-to-come new covenant, the center of worship is Christ and not the temple, and if the temple is just for Israel, and if the temple was going to be destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans anyway, then why did Jesus care so much for this sacred space? Why did he care so much? I'm going to give you the answer in a little while. I want to explore another text. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 21. 
back in our Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 21. And we're going to walk through some important parts of this text. Now I'm going to give you the answer to that question. The symbol of the presence of God on earth was the holy place, the central sanctuary. This most holy place was where God would meet with his people. And the the temple as a whole, the, the tabernacle, when it was the traveling temple, as it were, it was a place of sacrificial ritual, but it was also a house of prayer, a house of praise. And under King David, Israel sought to have a permanent resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, really the throne of God on earth. And this place was to be in Jerusalem. David purchased the threshing floor of Arana, sometimes also called Ornan. 2 Samuel 24 speaks of this. And it wasn't just a nice location. 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 identifies this as the place where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac or attempted to sacrifice Isaac. And it was saved by this, by the angel of the Lord. It was Mount Moriah. Very, very special place. Jerusalem was also known as Salem. Previously, and the king of the place was Melchizedek, the kingly priest of the Most High God in Abraham's day. And Mount Moriah, the crown of this hill, according to tradition, was where Melchizedek ruled and where he worshipped. So there's a, a massive amount of significance to this place. Now, the context of the acquisition of that place was not a good one. The land was acquired after David sinned by numbering the people in pride. 2 Samuel 24 records this, and then all of 1 Chronicles 21 and 22 reference this as well. And so the Lord chose this spot, this very spot, to announce David's discipline. The discipline on David and on his people. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 14. This is where he announced it. So Yahweh sent a pestilence against Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, Yahweh saw and relented concerning the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan or other places called Arana, the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven with a sword drawn in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to number the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done the great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Oh, Yahweh, my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. God stopped the plague. David was instructed by Gad, the prophet, to make an altar there. In other words, this place was highly associated with atonement from sin. The atonement of sin. Arana or Ornan wanted to donate the land, but David was insistent that he buy it. Look at verse 24 of chapter 21. However, King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not lift up what is yours to Yahweh or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. He declared that he would not sacrifice something that didn't cost him anything. And so he paid essentially the equivalent of 15 pounds of gold. 
David understood the idea. He understood the essence of sacrifice, that if it costs you nothing, it isn't a sacrifice. He purchased the spot. He built an altar. He offered burnt offerings. He offered peace offerings to the Lord. And then he made an announcement. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of Yahweh God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. He announced that the house of God would be built right there on that spot, Mount Moriah. But David would not be the one to build it. He wanted to, but he would not be the one. Look at verse 6 of chapter 22. And he called for his son Solomon and commanded him to build a house for Yahweh, the God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had it within my heart to build a house to the name of Yahweh my God. But the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you, you shall, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, just to be clear here, God is not saying that David did anything wrong. David was the defender of Israel. He was the one to create the peace that Solomon would enjoy. But the temple was to recall the memory of God being at spiritual rest with his people and God's people being at rest with God in the Garden of Eden. And so Solomon, which means peace, would be the one to build the temple. But boy, David did all he could to prepare for the temple. He acquired the land, he collected the materials, he hired the craftsmen, he raised the money. Look at all he did. Back in verse 2 of chapter 22. Verse 2, so David gathered the sojourners who were in the land of Israel. He appointed stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. He prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates, for the clamps, more bronze than could be weighed. Verse 4, timbers of cedar logs for Sidonians and Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber. Verse 14, David says, Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of Yahweh 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, bronze and iron beyond weight, great in quantity, timber, stone. And then he says he, he brought out all the craftsmen, men who know how to use these materials. And in verse 19, Now give your heart and your soul to seek Yahweh your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of Yahweh God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built for the name of Yahweh. This is thrilling. All these materials being gathered, a treasure being gathered. You know what moves me? It moves me that David worked so hard to build a temple in which he would never personally worship. David drew up the plans by divine inspiration and gave instruction to Solomon on how to build it. First Chronicles 28 gives that story. David moved the Ark of the Covenant from its location in the woods in the area of Gibeon to the area of the Temple Mount in preparation for the temple. David continued fundraising. Turn a few pages ahead to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, he was going to do everything he could to set the table for Solomon. 
And the fundraising had two components. It was voluntary and it was generous. This is so thrilling. Chapter 29, verse 1, Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for Yahweh God. Now with all my power I have prepared for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my pleasure in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already prepared for the holy house, namely 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings of gold for the things of gold and of silver for the things of silver. That is for all the work done by the hand of craftsmen. Who then would offer willingly to ordain himself this day to Yahweh? In other words, David just said, I just gave my fortune to the temple. Verse 6, Then the commanders of the father's households and the commanders of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the commanders of the king's work offered willingly and for the service of the house of the Lord. And then it gives a list of just the mass of treasure that the leaders of Israel gave. They went first. In verse 9, then the people were glad because they had offered so willingly. Did you catch that? They're glad because they're generous. And they made their free will offering to Yahweh with a whole heart. And King David also was exceedingly glad. David is so overwhelmed by their generosity that he, com- he, he commemorated this moment in a short psalm in verses 10 through 19. The, the faithfulness of God's people was turning back to praise for God. And there's such a spirit of worship and joy in response to David's invitation. All the people praised God. They fell on their faces before him to recognize his sovereignty, his holiness, his goodness. And they're overwhelmed with God. In verse 20, David makes this invitation and look what they do. Verse 20, then David said to all the assembly, now bless Yahweh your God. And all the assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and prostrated themselves to Yahweh and to the king. Solomon began construction in the fourth year of his reign, around 966 B.C. 1 Kings 6 says this, And the temple complex was majestic. It was awe-inspiring. It was elaborate. It was ornate. The, The center of the temple complex was the temple building itself. It was 104 feet long, 52 feet high. The walls were 10 feet thick. No motorcycles going by would bother them whatsoever. (laughs) It was divided into two sections. The holy place, the open part of the sanctuary where the priests served, it was 70 feet long. And the most holy place, the place where the presence of God dwelt on earth, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, The most holy place was an exact cube, 34 feet in all directions. The building had an entrance hall that also was 34 feet wide and 17 feet deep. The entire building was elevated 10 feet off the ground. The courtyard was encircled by chambers and galleries for the Levites, for the musicians, the singers, the servants. They had all the storage they needed for all sorts of things they needed for the temple. It was essentially surrounding them was an apartment complex of sorts. 
And this encircled complex was three stories high and had massive outer walls. So there were always ministers on hand for every need of the temple, always all the things you needed for worship as well. The same basic furnishings and paraphernalia that were found in the traveling tabernacle that had been used for hundreds of years. Now, these things were also in the temple, but on a much higher and loftier scale. In contrast to the portable traveling altar that was just a few feet in in any direction, the altar Solomon had constructed was 34 feet square and 17 and a half feet high. It was massive. Solomon's laver for water, it's like a a basin for washing, was 17 feet around, 8.5 feet deep, and held 10,000 gallons of water. The whole thing was held up in the air by 12 bronze bulls, all facing different direction. It it had 10 carts of bronze, each with a 200-gallon water capacity for bringing water to the reservoir. The, The tabernacle that traveled had one lampstand for the holy place. The temple had 10 of them. So this thing was glorious. The temple was a place that one theologian called the dramatic approach to God. The dramatic approach to God. It was ornate beyond belief. Cedar walls, cypress floors in the holy place so that no stonework was visible. Incredible stonework. Then they covered it up with even better stuff. Most of the woodwork was decorated with inlaid pure gold. The inside walls were filled with carvings of flowers and gourds and palm trees. The large double doors leading into the holy place and to the most holy place were carved out of solid olive wood, that glorious wood that's multicolored with the twirly grain to it. Inside the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, there were two giant carved cherubim, angels, 17 feet high, made of olive wood and trimmed with gold, symbolizing the angelic presence with God. By the way, anywhere in Scripture where the throne of God is pictured, the cherubim are always there. There's always a core of guardian angels, so to speak. They faced the entrance so that their wings touched each other and all the way to the side walls. You see, the temple was a tangible reminder of what had been lost in the Garden of Eden. It was a little representation of the Garden of Eden. And it gave hope that in the future, that complete fellowship with God would be restored. And Solomon, his theology is very good and he's very clear that although the temple was glorious, the most glorious structure on earth at that point, it was still just a representation of the dwelling place of God. Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8, 27, Will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. In other words, he's saying, God, this this little bitty cottage that I've built can't contain you. It's just a representation. What was the temple showing about God? We could spend weeks on this, but let me show you three things the temple was showing about God. First of all, It showed the majesty of God. The majesty of God. Everything was built in perfect symmetry, perfect harmony. Only the very best building materials were used. All things made by God, by the way. The wall hangings had rich colors like blue and purple and scarlet. These are royal colors. These are regal colors. 
the massive quantity of bronze and silver and gold showed the honor that was due to the one who was worshipped there. So it showed the majesty of God. The temple also showed the salvation of God. It showed the salvation of God. The, the courtyard was enclosed from the world. It was separated from the world. Entrance into it was controlled by the Levitical uh, gatekeepers. They also helped the worshipers prepare to be in God's presence. There was a definite line of demarcation between the world and God. The worshipers would first approach this high altar where the sacrifice was made. And then they went to the laver, the, the massive basin for washing to symbolize purity, which follows atonement. Continued access to God was guided by the light of the lampstands and supported by the intercessory prayers of the priests at the altar of incense. But direct access to God was mediated. Only the high priest could enter into the most holy place and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when the high priest emerged from the most holy place and declared that grace and peace were given once again to God's people, there was rejoicing that relationship with God had been restored. There was peace with God. There was harmony of relationship between God and His people. It shows salvation. And the temple also showed the kingdom of God. It showed the kingdom of God. This is the place where God's throne on earth, a, a little foretaste of when God would be physically present on the earth, is just a little taste the whole temple complex was set apart. It was a reminder of, and in fact, just a replica of the heavenly sanctuary of God. It was a tangible expression that the kingdom of God on earth was a place where people could find refuge from sin, from death, and from hopelessness. There is a reason that when Christ returns, one of the main activities in Israel will be the rebuilding of the temple now, fast forward to Jesus' day and the coming new covenant. It's reasonable to ask the question, how does the temple relate to this next dispensation of God's plan, the new covenant? Well, the temple housing the glory of God foreshadowed the veiled glory of Christ. John 1.14, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. After the resurrection of Christ, there's a new dwelling place for the presence of God on earth, the body of Christ, the church. Believers have become the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this. But the temple was also used by the apostles in multiple writings to use its symbolic features to teach the doctrines of our grace, of our faith to teach the grace of God as well as teaching on the Christian life and service. So the temple served as a tremendous illustration. But the temple also provided the inspiration for the church of Jesus Christ. Now what do we mean by that? When Christianity grew incredibly rapidly after the death of the apostles, it became necessary to have better places to meet together. It was pragmatically necessary to have appropriate places to allow for preaching, for singing, for the Lord's table, for baptism, for fellowship together. Symbolism was necessary to identify these places as unique and set apart. Over time, crosses and even other Christian symbols were used to identify that this is a place set apart. It is sacred to us for the worship of Christ. And in fact, the very earliest church buildings found by archaeologists 
show a deliberate effort to recreate the structure of the temple in many ways. But interestingly, it's adjusted for Christian worship. It included spaces for preaching, for choirs, for instrumentalists, for preparing the Lord's table, and for baptism. So the early church was inspired by the temple. Okay, but remember our if, 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 then question. If space doesn't matter because the church is the church wherever we are, and if the church isn't a building, and if in the soon-to-come new covenant the center of worship is Christ and not the temple, and if the temple is just for Israel, and if the temple is going to be destroyed in AD 70 by Rome anyway, then why did Jesus care so much for this sacred space? And by the way, this wasn't even Solomon's temple. This was the smaller, much lesser version built by the returning exiles. Why did Jesus care so much for this sacred space? Here's the answer. Sacred space is a tangible expression of the majesty and glory of God. Sacred space is a tangible expression of the majesty and glory of God and that He is our highest priority. That's the answer. Sacred space is a tangible expression or demonstration of the majesty and glory of God and that He is our highest priority. Listen, go back to the temple days. In, the, in, in Israel, there was one national shrine, one national place to worship. That was it. But in later days, local communities began building synagogues. They had to work within their means to build them modest structures for the gathering of God's people. You couldn't always go to the temple. If you lived 80 miles away, it wasn't practical. But one of the premier theologians in the area of a theology of worship, Dr. Alan Ross, he wrote something so helpful and so applicable, I want to take time to read it to you. Listen to Dr. Ross. Despite having to work within their means... If worshipers want their building to be a place where people can come up out of their mundane routines and catch a glimpse of glory, then how they build the sanctuary and with what materials it is constructed should be given careful thought. The place of worship, after all, reflects not only the priorities and procedures of the worshipers who assemble there, but also the value they place on the holy God they worship. And Ross makes a note that even in the smallest villages in Israel, in the smallest villages, all the families might be living in very, very modest homes, some of them with one room, but the synagogue was always the nicest place in town. It was always the best. It was always the most ornate. Ross continues, no matter how humble the place of worship the preparation and care of it should say to all the worshipers that this place is special, that this is a place that has been set aside for communion with the majesty on high and that he deserves the very best they have. This is reflected in doing our very best, isn't it? Even in how we care for the church building, even in how we, how we clean it. Let me put it this way. These are the most important floors in the world. These are the most important carpets in the world. These are the most important light bulbs in the world. Because they don't light your living room. They light the place where we meet with God. Church history is filled with glorious attempts by local churches to dramatize the movement of God's people through the entire process of approaching God. 
uh, all with the ultimate meaning of salvation found in Christ, of course. But some of the greatest preaching and worshiping structures in history have, to the best of their ability, had a structure to reflect the glory of God. And even the architecture says this. Now, obviously, an ornate building by itself without the proper teaching and preaching of the truth of the gospel, that becomes a hollow shell, right? That becomes useless. That becomes pointless. A building with beauty, yet it forgot its heavenly purpose, so to speak. And, just as obviously, a small fledgling church can meet in someone's living room. They can meet in a modest, tiny space and still proclaim the glorious truths of the gospel. But ever since the massive wave, first wave of persecution ended in the 4th century B.C., churches all over the world have been driven naturally to combine the glorious truths of the gospel in proclamation and teaching and discipleship with buildings that proclaim the majesty and the salvation and the kingdom of God. And so this is, above all, a matter of the heart. Sacred space is a tangible expression of the majesty and glory of God and that He is our highest priority. Those are pretty neat pictures we just got to see a few minutes ago. The artist's rendering of what uh, we can do should the Lord choose to provide. But those pictures are not just about the pragmatics of a nice-looking building that we like stone better than we like gravel. We're making a theological statement about how important God is to us. That he's holy. That he's above. That he's glorious. We can't do what Solomon did. We didn't show you any picture of silver inlaid walls and gold ornate anything. But we can do what the Lord allows little us to do. Every column, every light bulb, every stroke of paint, everything that we can make beautiful and delightful is because we have designated this sacred space because our God is beautiful and delightful, is he not? I want you to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed to provide for the forgiveness of your sin. He was abiding in the real temple of God. He was abiding in heaven, surrounded by countless billions of angels, proclaiming his glory and extolling the virtues of the power of the Son of God since eternity past. He was basking in the glory of his Father, in the glory of the Spirit, in the glory of his own magnificence. And yet he stepped down out of all of that to the filth of this world and to the agony of the cross. He forsook all the benefits of the glory that has always been his so that we could share all that He has and be with Him forever. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by Spirit and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. Isn't it just a little thing we can do? We gather at this location that we've designated sacred space. It's not a very big space, but it's sacred. We worship a Savior who gave up the glories of heaven so that we can have life and life everlasting. The least we can do is set apart one little piece of earth to say this belongs to Him. That's the least we can do. 
sacred space. It is a glorious thing. Let us never forget it. Our Father, we thank you for this little space you've given to us. And of course, we all understand here, Lord, that the church is not a building. We would never make that assertion. We don't believe that. The church is here. The church is made up of those meeting around the world even as we speak. The church is made up of uh, the vast majority of the church is at home with you already. But all through the centuries, the church has claimed little tiny pieces of the earth to say this piece belongs to the worship of Christ. You've given us this little tiny piece here on White Lane for this era, for, the, for these coming years, Lord. And it is our desire that the character of this place match the character of the God we worship. It is our desire that in this little place the glories of heaven, the glories of the cross, the magnificence of the doctrines of justification and regeneration and sanctification and glorification would all go upward to heaven to give you glory and into our hearts to give us a sanctified life. Just as you have called us to be set apart as your people, we desire to set apart this little tiny space to give Christ glory. And nothing else happens here. Nothing else happens here. This is not a community center. This is not a, a meeting hall for some club to come meet in. This is only for God's people to gather and to give glory to the one who gave his all for us. We thank you and we praise you with all the glory that is due to your name. Amen.